turns out that solar is a kind of energy farming. And so your, your yield per acre is pretty important. And we have consistently uh, increased the efficiency of solar panels over the last couple of decades. Uh, but we're now up against a fundamental limit. Hello, I'm Frank Vermeerlo and I'm the CEO of 1366 Technologies. Frank, you know a lot about energy technologies and climate change, but particularly solar. So um, I want to start there. So for people who are new to solar, can you talk about where it is today? Yeah, absolutely. So we've come a long way. You know, initially when solar was first invented in the labs, it was around $10 per watt peak. And now we're very close to a cost that uh, can deliver electricity costs around five, four cents per kilowatt hour. So we've seen a dramatic, dramatic cost decline over the last couple of decades. When you talk about solar, you're talking about traditional, I guess, silicon solar. Is that right? Yeah, solar has always been mostly silicon. You know, there has been different types of silicon, Sikorsky furnaces, DSS furnaces, but solar, you know, 18, 90% of the market has always been silicon. There have been some thin film uh, technologies. You know, the most notable there is a company called First Solar that has a product uh, called Cattel. And, you know, that was a very uh, inventive uh, technology that came uh, in part out of NREL as well and has been commercialized uh, by First Solar in their factories in Ohio and other places. What you do at 1366, is that silicon or is that something else? Yeah, we do silicon. We've always believed in silicon. Uh, for us, uh, the first t-shirt I printed up for the company was Don't Bet Against Rock. And it had a silicon symbol on the back. And at the time, it was actually not popular. I mean, there were, there were close to 200 solar startups and many of them were doing alternative materials. We are one of the very few survivors of that, that particular batch. And, and silicon absolutely stayed and is now more dominant than ever. I've heard you talk in other places about this idea of the next step for solar, as in solar only shines during the day. So what happens when it's not shining um, and how energy storage plays into that? Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that? You're absolutely right. I mean, clearly, if you're going to use solar and if that's going to drive your economy, you need to have some way of powering things at night when the sun isn't shining. So how do you, how do you store that energy? And it turns out that there is actually a lot of very viable solutions available today. You know, when the local nuclear plant was built uh, in the middle of last century, they had the opposite problem. Uh, the nuclear plants, they produce uh, power steadily, you know, during the day and during the night. You can't modulate that. So one of the limitations seems like energy storage. The, the other one that I've heard you talk about is this idea of like single junction versus tandem technology in solar. Can you just explain what that is? Yeah, as you know, I recently gave a TED talk on that topic. Um, so it turns out that solar is a kind of energy farming. And so your, your yield per acre is pretty important. And we have consistently uh, increased the efficiency of solar panels over the last couple of decades. But we're now up against a fundamental limit. And for single junction, meaning uh, you know, one material, that limit is around 24% on a module. 
The theoretical limit is more like 30-31%. Uh, that's the Shockley-Quasar limit. But in practice, because you always have some losses, you end up with around 24% in the module. Clearly, it would be better if we could get a higher efficiency. Well, if you introduce a second material, and just now that's becoming possible, until now that really has not been economically viable. I mean, we, we knew how to do this for like space stations, but at a cost that was 100 times more expensive than regular solar. Because costs are coming down, because knowledge of materials is getting better, it's now possible to make a module with two materials. And therefore, you have one material harvesting the infrared light, where most of the photons are, but they don't have that much energy. And then the other material harvesting the high energy photons. And then you can lift the total energy yield of a solar module. Turns out that this is pretty significant. If you think that you're going to power all of the US with solar, uh, going to tandem would save you an area of uh, the state of Connecticut. And so it has a big impact. You know, what the green revolution did for agriculture, tandem is going to do for solar. So what is the second material that's able to extend the band gap? Uh, there's a couple of materials that people are working on. And there's working prototypes in several top layers. Basically, there's about 10,000 different uh, photovoltaic materials. And basically, you want something with a band cap of about 1.7 electrovolts. And so you have, you have options there. Uh, the real breakthroughs is not so much in the selection of the material, but more in the doing it in a cost-effective manner. Right, because this used to only be viable for, you're saying, like space stations and really large-scale... That's right. Until now, the multi-junction panels were only possible on, on satellites where you don't mind paying 100 times more than what you would pay for a terrestrial panel. So what's making it possible now? Breakthroughs in, in, in you know, the, the layers at the top. You, know, you need conductive electrodes. You need, uh, you need to have insulators that have really good transmission. And you have to be able to apply all of that cost-effectively. So it's really breakthroughs in engineering material and, and manufacturing techniques. So if the cost of solar is going down overall, is this new innovation going to further decrease the cost or is it going to increase it because you're adding this new material and this new technology? No, it will absolutely further decrease it. Roughly, you can keep the cost per watt per panel the same, but you're just simply going to get more watts per panel. And now the corresponding infrastructure gets leveraged uh, over a more efficient panel. So you, you, know, you need less lands, you need less labeling, you need less racking. And so the total insulation cost is, uh, is going to go down. So this is what's going to get us to the two cents per kilowatt hour. In most areas of the world today, we cannot achieve that. But with tandem, I think we can get there. So what are the drawbacks to this? But there never is drawbacks to this sort of thing. I mean, this is just simply a better technology coming online. There's no drawbacks. I mean, I've uh, spoken like a true MIT engineer. You know, life just gets better when we invent better technology. <laughs> right. You mentioned MIT. Let's go there a little bit. So you graduated from MIT with a degree in mechanical engineering. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. A long, long, long time ago. <laughs> Talk a little bit about your time there. What influenced you? Who or what influenced you the most during your time there and led you to where you are today? For me, MIT was a fantastic place. I mean, it was, uh, I had a, had a lot of fun there. It was a fun place where I've made a lot of friends. The key thing I learned at MIT was that I couldn't get my problem sets done alone. 
I, you know, they were too difficult. And so I became really good at organizing these sessions to do the problem sets. And so, I mean, the way that played out is that I would find a smarter engineer, Audrey Hartman, Jim Bellingham, people like that. And uh, they would come and we would do the problem set together. I would serve tea and, you know, everybody was happy. And, you know, in a way, I look back on that and I think it was such a great training to become a CEO because, first of all, it's very important in life to recognize that other people are smarter. You get a lot more done if you get that basic concept in your head. And second of all, it is really important to get things done in, with a team. And the MIT problem set structure really taught me that. And so if I had to pick a single thing that really worked well for me, uh, it's probably that, uh, that experience. For people who didn't go to MIT, explain what a problem set is. Oh, about 10% of your grade uh, was homework that you had to do. And this homework tended to be pretty difficult in some of the courses. And so number of students would get together and together you try to solve a particular problem. And what about your interest in energy? Did that come from MIT or did that come after? So the first company I spun out of MIT is a company called Bluefin Robotics. And uh, that was a fantastic little venture. We pioneered autonomous underwater vehicles. And uh, it was really building on the work of uh, Jim Bellingham, who I had met doing problem sets. And he, he stayed at MIT and built up uh, the autonomous underwater vehicle lab. And we really pioneered artificial intelligence. Uh, it, you know, because there is no radio link to submarines, you have to endow these little vehicles with enough intelligence so they can execute their mission. And uh, we did that. Uh, that company was always profitable, always grew double digits, and then was successfully sold in, uh, in 2005. It's currently part of General Dynamics. After selling Bluefin, I tried retirement for a little bit. And uh, my wife quickly informed me that uh, it was pretty important I find a job outside of the house. And so uh, I, uh, I went back to MIT. And, uh, and at the time, uh, energy was a big focus at MIT. So I, I actually sat next to the then president, Susan Hockfield, when she launched the MIT Energy Initiative in Kresge. And that seemed like a good thing to get involved in. And so I, for about a year, I looked at all sorts of different technologies. I came to the conclusion that solar really was probably the right solution to tackle climate change. And then I started 1366 with a team of engineers from MIT and, and other people, people from RPI. And uh, there was a local company at the time that was doing sort of photovoltaics. And we got a couple of their top engineers. And that was the beginning of the venture. So, so yeah, no, absolutely. Both, both my companies uh, have roots that uh, started at MIT. I would like to dig in a little bit into the green hydrogen, just because I know I don't really understand what that is. So for anyone listening who maybe needs an explanation as well, can you just start at the top? Like, what is green hydrogen and how does it play into solar? Today... If people use hydrogen, the way that's normally made is you take methane, you crack it, and you get hydrogen. But that also gives you more CO2. And so a cleaner way to make hydrogen is to use electricity to split water. Water is H2O, of course, and you use electricity, you can split it into hydrogen and oxygen. And if the cost of electricity is low enough, and you need around two cents per kilowatt hour, then you can actually produce hydrogen in a pretty cost-effective manner. Hydrogen 
is a fantastic fuel that can be the feedstock for many things. So you, you know, once you have hydrogen, that's such an energetic gas that you can use it to make steel, for example. So a lot of places where you are currently using uh, things like coal and diesel and methane, hydrogen can replace that. And one of the challenges with hydrogen is that uh, it's a small molecule and it's not that easy to store or to ship. There tends to be leakage. And you know, if you want to store it for a long time, you have to compress it or you have to make it extremely cold. And so a way to store hydrogen in a different molecule is to uh, turn it into ammonia with what's called the Haber-Bosch process. And then that ammonia is a fuel that's a lot like diesel. And you can use that for all sorts of things. And so hydrogen really is the key to truly going away from a carbon completely. So the first solution is really cheap electricity from solar. And then you want to store intermediate energy storage, short-term energy storage can happen with things like battery and pumped hydro. And then to transition the very energy-hungry industrial processes and to do the seasonal storage, that's where uh, green hydrogen starts playing a role. So all these pieces have to come together uh, to completely change our energy mix. It's a daunting task, right? I mean, it's not, this is not easy. And, uh, and nobody should ever tell you it's easy. But it's one that's absolutely possible if you truly want it. If you would price carbon at about $75 per ton, the market would solve it for you. But you would need the political will to do that. So we need leadership that would be maybe enforcing that. Yeah, and in order to get leadership in a democracy, the majority of us need to believe that we actually have to solve this problem. So these things are related. Ultimately, the problem is us. This is a problem that's always difficult for human beings, right? It's the same reason we have trouble controlling our weight, the same reason that we have trouble with our national debt. It is problems that are in the future, and if there is tension between the future and now, human nature says that the now tends to win. And with climate change, that's particularly the case, because that's a problem that is not even us, it's our grandkids. But boy, is it important we get it right. And so we really have to rise above ourselves. We need that psychological shift that we recognize this is a problem we want to solve. And then we're eminently capable of solving it. We are an incredibly capable species and we have lots of great technology tools. Tandem, green hydrogen, pumped salt water hydro, great batteries, all of these things. It sounds also like maybe an issue of education. Maybe if more people knew the basics of how solar worked or about green hydrogen or how all of these pieces come together, they might be more likely to advocate for it or petition, you know, the government to to be doing more. And that's where podcasts like the ones you are doing are so important. That's where MIT clearly has a vital role to play. I think MIT and, and you are doing that and it's an important task. If you had to send people away with one message or learning about, about anything, about climate change, about energy, about solar, that you think would benefit them, or that you just wish more people knew about, what would that be? Oh, it really is a sense that tools are, have gotten much, much better in the last decade. We have solved a lot of problems. And so now it really comes down to a will to tackle climate change 
in a way that's substantive. But the, the solutions are there. We are able to do this. That's the message. We just have to now decide that we want to do it. And when you say we decide, you mean politically, because individually there's not much we can do. As a species, as a country, as a nation, the majority of us have to recognize that this is a problem we want to solve. The other thing I like to point out is that if tomorrow you tax carbon, that actually doesn't cost any money. It's just a policy decision. Tax you pay to yourself. And so, you know, for all the tax that you collect uh, with uh, taxing CO2, that revenue can be used to reduce the tax burden somewhere else. So it's, it's more smart policy than that it truly has to increase the burden in an unacceptable manner. But you need a price signal in the market that pollution isn't free. You need to give people an incentive to deploy all of these solutions that are on the shelf and not continue with the way we are producing our energy at the moment. And what's the next challenge that you're facing at your company specifically? Well, absolutely, we have to make this tandem a uh, success. Uh, we have to make sure that we build these gigawatt factories and uh, deliver the quality and the reliability that uh, we believe we can deliver. And then we need to continue to scale. And my hope is that we create not a two gigawatt company or a 10 gigawatt company. My hope is that we create a 50 gigawatt company that uh, plays a big role in, in the next phase of, of solar and helps bring that cost down to two cents. Well, Frank, I want to thank you for such a comprehensive discussion about solar and the surrounding technologies and your compelling vision for a better world. Thank you for the the important work that you're doing and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.